Well, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Communication, and the subtitle is The Marriage of Two Minds. So the first question we need to look at, very briefly, is what is philosophy? And philosophy can be defined as the love of wisdom. And what is communication? Well, the word communication comes from the same word communion. It is to do with the two becoming one in experience. So ultimately, communication is to become one in wisdom or in truth. Now, there are two purposes of communication. There's the primary purpose, which is for the discovery of truth, i.e. to know who am I. And all the master teachers have mainly communicated through words. If we can understand these words and apply these words in our lives, then the truth is discovered. These words dissolve ignorance. They dispel ignorance. And some of you may know that the word gospel comes from two words originally, good spell. And a good spell is something which dispels ignorance. So these words inspire, they give direction and purpose to life, they purify the mind and heart, so that the truth of who am I is revealed. Now there's a secondary purpose then to communication, and this is so that we may relate to the creation with everybody and everything. It helps create unity of purpose and efficiency of organization and execution. It helps explain the workings of the creation and it allows for exchange of information. So these two purposes of communication can be summarized as follows. The first, by allowing you to discover who you are, results in complete freedom and detachment from the creation. And the second gets you around the creation in an intelligent, efficient, and harmonious manner. Now, what are the means of communication? Well, ultimately, everything. Everything we do and everything about us communicates something about us. So, obviously, speech, writing, singing, even our silence communicates, particularly the frozen silence. The clothes we wear sends out a message or send out a message. The friends you hang around with communicate something about you. In days of old, it was said that you could judge a man by his library. Would you like to be judged by your library? <laughs> so, the car we own, the way we drive it, the house we own, how we keep it, the holidays that we take, who we vote for, the food we eat, and the way we eat it, is all communicating something about ourselves. Our facial expressions, a raised eyebrow can tell so much. Our hand gestures, the way we sit. I'm not going to judge what you're communicating to me right now, because <laughs> I might just drive back to Dublin. And then there's subtle communication. And this is what happens where the relationship of love and affection is extremely deep. And an example would be maybe a mother and a son who have tremendous affection for each other, and yet they're 10,000 miles apart. 
And the mother instinctively knows that something has happened to the son or vice versa. And so she makes a phone call and she's told that he's been brought into hospital or whatever. That is subtle communication. And distance is no object there. And given the depth of love of the wise, there is no limit to their capacity to communicate. A famous sage from India of the last century called Ramana Maharshi, for a while he taught through silence. And in the end, he used words because he said people couldn't understand the silence. Society also communicates. It communicates with its language, its music, its art, its literature, and its architecture, and its laws, and all other things. So in 200 years' time, people are going to look at us, and they're going to look at our language, the language of today, they're going to look at the music of today, the art of today, the literature of today, the architecture of today, the laws of today, and they're going to judge us. So God help us. Now, the importance of communication. Well, tonight we're going to primarily concentrate on speech as it is the most powerful means of communication. And the first point to note is that you only know what you do know when you speak it. And you notice this, that you often think you do know something until you start to speak it, and then you realize, I don't really understand what I'm saying, or more so if people question you about what you are saying, then you suddenly realize the limits of what you say often you realize that there's a, a flaw in your argument halfway through the argument. So when you speak, you reveal what you do know in truth, you reveal what you know in error, and you also reveal what you do not know. Now, what is not true communication? And there are a number of things which are not true communication. They don't result in the two becoming one. The first thing is idle chatter. This is sort of a verbal diarrhea. The equivalent of it would be your daughter, your 15-year-old daughter, on the phone for about an hour to her friend. There's innumerable words and no content. It takes at least 25 minutes to say goodbye to each other. It costs at least a fiver. The second thing is lying or speaking with a bias, prejudice, or preconceptions. The third thing is not saying what you mean. If any of you have young children, sometimes a mother can fall into this trap. She wants to come to a philosophy lecture on communication. It starts at 7.30. The child normally goes to bed at 8. So around 6 o'clock, she starts telling the child that it's looking very tired tonight and that it should go to bed early. The child, because it knows your inner world more than you know it, says, Mummy's going to philosophy and communication tonight. And uh, this is how you communicate. You lie to each other. So the child then says, I love when you stay in, mummy, and we stay up all night talking. Then there is speech which just does not communicate anything. It's just words and no meaning. So an example of that would be two people who go out for the evening, and the first one says, what would you like to do? So the second one says, well, I would like to do whatever you would like to do. 
And so they finish off by going to a film that both of them loathe in a cinema they heartily detest in seats that are too expensive just to please the other person. Then there is hidden agenda speech. Sometimes in the middle of the day I get a phone call from, say, one of my daughters and they'll ask me, what time will you be home at tonight? Now, they are never ordinarily interested in what time I'm going to be home at tonight. So I tell them, I'm not going to tell you what time I'm going to be home at tonight. And then there's a five or ten second silence and they say, well, could you give me a lift somewhere at such and such a time? Or about a number of years ago, my wife had a, it might have been a 15-year-old Jeep at this stage, but anyway, it still went from A to B. And I come home one evening and I'm told that a lady called Mary McDermott has got a brand new Jeep. Now, there are lots of people that I know who get brand new Jeeps, but I'm never informed about it. But on this occasion, I was informed <laughs> that a certain person had got a brand new Jeep. So I decided well, I won't say anything. You don't have to wait very long. You know. If you don't get the message, you get another message. So I was told a couple of days later that it was a very nice Jeep that she had got. So I said to my wife, would you, would you like a new Jeep? She said, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I don't want a new Jeep. So <laughs> it's important that you deny your hidden agenda. Anyway, so I said, well, look, why don't we go down? We just look and see there might be a Jeep that just might change your mind. Anyway, so we bought a new Jeep. And interesting enough, if, and this is three years later, if I asked my wife, I said, you know, you really did want the Jeep, didn't you? And that's why you, you told me about Mrs. McDermott's car. She says, no. She won't even admit it three years later. <laughs> anyway, so that's hidden agenda speech. And then there's the avoidance speech, which is, when somebody doesn't want to face the topic, they say, I can't stop now, I have to dash. That sort of speech. Or can we talk about this another time? Which means never. My youngest daughter came up to me a year or two ago and she asked me, could she do something or get something? And I said, through the newspaper, I said, we'll see. And she didn't go away, as she normally does. She said, every time you say, we'll see, it means no, later. So I said, okay, the answer is no. And that's what we'll see does actually mean. It means no, but I just don't want to say it right now. Another aspect of communication which is not true is criticism. And this will range from you know, blatantly obvious statements, like calling somebody an idiot, to so-called criticism which is disguised as good advice. So this is your mother telling you how to rear the child. It's not really advice. It's basically telling you you're not doing it the right way. There's exaggerated speech, which is something like you turn up late once in a blue moon and you're told that you're always late. And then there's manipulative communication or manipulative speech, and this is where somebody says to you, you don't care about me. Now, there is no possible response to that statement where you can win. If you don't respond, you're dead in the water. If you do respond, you're told that you only said that because I said you didn't care about me. 
so you can't possibly. And the purpose of the statement is merely to make you say something. There's no, nothing in the statement itself. It's to force you to say something. And, of course, there's the frozen silences, and then there's the heavy sighing. What you notice about heavy sighing is it normally takes place just as the door is about to close behind the person. So just as they're going out the door, they say, and then the door closes. And everybody in the room is left in this sort of dark atmosphere. And so it's impossible to watch the match in peace because you don't know <laughs> whether the person has slashed their wrists in the next room or not. <laughs> and this is not to do with speech, but this is also to do with communication. You notice that if you have the courage to ask for a cup of tea, that it hits the table with a sort of a slightly louder sound than normal. There's a message in the sound. You try and convince yourself that your wife is developing a shake in her hand, but it's not true. <laughs> it's just the cup hits the table with a deliberate sound. My own belief that my wife has the capacity to measure a kiss to a nanosecond. She can just cut it short, which lets me know that I've done something wrong. It's just... Just not long enough <laughs> to, to, to indicate affection, right? <laughs> so. Or sometimes you look up and you find that your partner has gone to bed without even saying goodnight. You just look up and you, you come out of the vampire film that you've been absorbed in and the person has gone to bed and nobody said goodnight to you. And you have to wait till the next morning to find out what it is that you did do. Now... What are the factors of true communication? At its highest level, true communication is in pursuit of truth. It leads from the senses to the mind and from mind to spirit. It leads you from sounds to silence. All good speech ends in silence. It leads you back to the silent knowledge of your true self, which is beyond all words. The second factor of true communication is that the outer must reflect the inner. To have authority, you have to say what you mean and you have to do what you say. So some of you may have heard this story before, but it comes from the East and it's about a mother who has a son who eats far too many sweets. And no matter what she says, this son will not give up the consumption of sweets. So she decides to bring him to the wise man of the village and see, can he do anything about it? So the child is plunked in front of the wise man and the wise man is informed that this child is eating far too many sweets. And the wise man simply says, bring him back in a week. So the mother takes the child away and then comes back a week later and the little boy is put in front of the wise man again. And the wise man looks at the little boy straight in the eye and he says, stop eating sweets. And the mother asks the wise man, I brought him last week, why didn't you just say that to him last week? And the wise man says, well, I had to give them up first. <laughs> right? And this is a very important point, that actions must accompany your words, otherwise people will have no respect for your speech. And we notice this, the children do lose respect for us, or can lose respect for us, because our words are far greater than our actions. 
Another point to note is that repetition or large numbers of words reduces the power of speech. So if you say to a child, I want you to bring the bins out, and then two minutes later you say to it, you are to bring the bins out, and another five minutes later you say, I'm very serious, you are to bring those bins out. They have no authority. You have to develop a sort of a Clint Eastwood aspect to your voice. You say it once, and you mean it. And then your words have authority. The next factor with regard to true communication is that the truth exists now. So best speech, which is true speech, cannot be rehearsed, revised, or improved. Because the truth cannot be rehearsed, revised, or improved. So the best speech is spontaneous. It's unknown before it is spoken. And an example of that would be wit. So if you've ever been witty, what you notice is that when you were witty, that you laughed as loudly as everybody else. And the reason you laughed as loudly as everybody else was because you were hearing it for the first time as well. It was not rehearsed. The next factor of true communication comes from a scripture called the Bhagavad Gita. And in it, it defines the discipline of speech. And it says, true speech is that which is true, which causes no pain, and which is pleasant and good or beneficial. And this can be summarized in one sentence, that we should learn to speak the truth pleasantly, not pleasant untruth. And if we could adopt that as a principle in life, then we would truly communicate. That we would learn to speak the truth pleasantly, not pleasant untruth. And the Shankaracharya, the man whom the school went to and put all its questions to, he had this to say about speaking the truth. He said, the initial effort on the way to perfect speech in truth is to resolve to have no company with untruth for it abounds in the so-called practical world. Then one has to learn what is real truth and speak it with resolution. Care must also be taken that the truth one speaks is pleasant and helpful to others. Truth can be harmful to others, and some never hesitate to speak truth if it is harmful to others, but if it is harmful to themselves, they easily compromise. But this is the way of the world. The aspirant would never hesitate to suffer the loss himself, but would not be instrumental to hurt anyone in the universe. So there are two aspects of this. First of all, one simply resolves that one will always speak the truth. Without that, you will find yourself lying under pressure. So you resolve to have no company with untruth. And the second thing is you take care never to hurt anyone with the truth. And this is covered by the willingness to suffer the loss yourself, but never to cause anybody else loss in your speech. I was talking to someone recently, and they were telling me about a person who's going to marry. And the person they're going to marry is completely unsuitable to them. And this is not the view of this particular person, but the view of everybody, all their friends. The person that they're going to marry 
is absolutely inappropriate, not a good person, in fact. So I asked this person, well, have you told? It's a lady. I said, have you told the lady this? And the answer was no. And I said, has anybody told the lady this? And the answer was no. So, all these good friends would allow a lady to marry somebody who's totally unsuitable, rather than maybe lose the friendship by saying it. The need is to use reason, to be alive to the welfare of all without deviating from the truth in any way. So with the true welfare of all in mind, one speaks without deviating from the truth in any way. You first of all resolve that you will speak the truth and then reason will show you how to speak it. Now the first virtue of a man who speaks the truth is fearlessness. If you are not fearless, you will not be able to stick to the truth. Most of the time we avoid speaking the truth because there is fear. So to speak the truth, one must be fearless. And again, recently I was told by a father that his son had been taking drugs. Albeit soft drugs, he was taking drugs. And the thing that really shocked the father, besides the fact that the son was taking the drugs, was that a number of the father's friends were aware that the son was taking drugs, but were afraid to tell the father. So fearlessness is the first virtue of someone who speaks the truth. Now, what are the impediments to communication? And we have this famous statement from Jesus, having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not, neither do they understand. So, it's not sufficient to have ears in order to be able to hear. Because there are impediments which stop you hearing what has been said. There are statements like, nobody listens to me. Or, I can't talk to you. Or, I can't hear what you're saying. Well, the real question is, who is speaking and who is listening? Is it the true self? Or is it the ego or image of myself who is speaking or listening? If it is the true self, then it is interested only in truth. And if it's the ego, then it's interested only in maintaining or protecting my image by persuasion, whether true or not, or by lies or by force. Now, there are three types of participants in a conversation, and I'm sure you'll recognize these, but only one is involved in true communication. Only one attains communion. So the first type, and this is ego-centered participant, and he's referred to as the destroyer. He is not interested in the truth of the situation. He simply attempts to destroy the argument of the other person without offering anything constructive himself. He uses sarcasm or cynicism or simply denounces the other's viewpoint with statements like rubbish. Now, there's obviously nobody in the room who's like this, but you may know of somebody who sometimes mm -hmm. behaves like this. 
The second type of participant in conversation is also ego-centered, and this type is the converter type. Now, he does not really listen to the other participant as he's not particularly interested in their viewpoint. He simply wants to convert everybody to his viewpoint, which he often passionately adheres to as true. He does not easily drop his point of view, even when flaws in his argument become evident. He tends to keep making the same point over and over again until he gets the other person to agree, i.e. he has converted them. And he will rely on cleverness of argument rather than the truth of the situation. Now again, you may know somebody like this other than yourself. And the third type of participant in conversation, and this participant is a truth-centered, not an ego-centered participant, and he is the inquirer. Here the participant does not have a fixed point of view. His interest is in the truth of the situation. He offers his own viewpoint and is equally interested in the viewpoints of others as they may lead him to the truth. He only rests when he has got to the truth of the matter. And he does not mind being proven wrong and he considers himself as having gained by being relieved of ignorance. He's actually grateful when he's proven wrong. Now, you recognize how often you're grateful when you're proven wrong. And it's a very interesting thing, this. If you were driving down the wrong road and somebody pointed it out to you, you would be extremely grateful. You say, gosh, thank you very much. But if we're proven wrong as regards a viewpoint we hold, we're not grateful if we're not interested in the truth. So this truth-centered person, he is the real participant in true conversation. Now, these two types, the destroyer and the converter, they produce ego-centered speech. And this has its effects on speech. And there's a whole series of these, and we'll just deal with them very briefly. The first effect on speech is that you cling to error, even when you know the truth. And this is when you're halfway through your very, very solid argument, and you suddenly realize, God, it's wrong. But you decide you're going to keep going anyway, because perhaps nobody else will notice it's wrong. So you cling to error, rather than lose face. Then the second effect is claiming to know what you do not know. And this is when you're with your friend who reads a little bit more than you and they mention that famous Russian author, Blavatsky, and they say, you must have heard of him. And you say, oh, of course I've heard of Blavatsky. And they say, can you remember any of the books he wrote? And of course, now you're in deep trouble. What you normally say is, well, I only read them in the Russian and I can't remember the titles. <laughs> the third effect of ego-centered speech is justification. And again, it's a very important point. The truth does not need defending. So normally, when you are defending yourself, this is a clear sign that you're in the wrong. You will notice that when you are being cruel and you say things like, you have to stand up for yourself. You have to justify the wrong action. 
The fourth effect of egocentric speech is taking stances. And this is where you decide where you're going to stand before the conversation even starts. Most business meetings are conducted on this basis. Everybody decides how they're going to vote or how they're going to decide before the meeting even starts, before they've heard the information. If a judge was to behave like that, it would be appalling. You may remember that in, I think it was in the 80s, that from the 70s onwards, the Russians and the Americans used to meet. They used to have these called summit meetings. Now, in fact, they weren't summit meetings, they were summits meetings because they were like two mountains standing apart from each other. They would just say things to each other with absolutely no move and no easing of the Cold War. And in the 80s, you had Gorbachev. And I don't know if you remember, but at the first meeting, he actually volunteered a reduction in the nuclear arsenal. And the Americans were stunned because he was no longer a separate summit. He'd actually effectively reached across the table. He wasn't taking a stand. And it took two or three meetings before the Americans realized there was somebody here who hadn't decided to stand apart but was willing to meet or to communicate. The next factor about ego-centered speech is that you develop a whole variety of voices. You've got your telephone voice at home, which is something like, hello. So people think that they've been put through to Buckingham Palace. And, they, and it's only when you recognize who it is that you're uh, speaking to that your real accent comes back in all its glory. And then you've got your business voice, which is you speak in very clipped, serious tones. And then you've got your honest voice. And you normally use that voice for when you're lying through your teeth. <laughs> the next uh, effect is not saying what needs to be said. And this is where you put the desire to be loved by the child ahead of the need of the child. So the child is not corrected, even though it would be in its welfare to be corrected, but one is afraid to lose the affection of the child. And similar to this is telling people what they want to hear in order to be liked or accepted. And this is agreeing with people when you, in fact, do not agree with what they're saying at all. The second aspect of impediments to communication is that the ego closes down communication. And this is particularly true in close relationships because there are positions to protect and there are unresolved issues built up over the years. So sometimes you find that there is the least communication with those you love most. So if you have a teenager, you may find that they only grunt to you every so often, particularly in response to offerings of food and money, but really nothing else. But when they go to the next door neighbor, they talk for hours and they tell them everything. In fact, if you want to find out what your son or daughter is intending to do with life, you have to go into your next door neighbor and ask them and they will tell you exactly how your son or daughter has filled out the CAO form or whatever. Of course, the reason why your son or daughter doesn't speak to you and will speak to the neighbor is because we speak at them and not to them. Whereas the neighbor speaks to them and not at them. 
You may also recognize that sometimes if you watch a couple, you find a husband, uh, I'm just going to make it the husband, it obviously applies to everybody, but uh, make it a husband, and you notice that when he talks to his wife, there's very, very little enthusiasm in his voice when he speaks. But the minute he's talking to everybody else, he's like a child with a lollipop. He talks about football matches, politics, weather, with uh, unbounded enthusiasm. And the third thing, which again we might recognize, you may have taken a train journey, and you sit down, and then somebody sits opposite you. And you suddenly find yourself speaking to them and telling them things about yourself that you've never told anybody. Your secret fears, your private aspirations, all sorts of things. So after two or three hours, they know more about you than those closest to you. Why is this? Why would we say this to a stranger? Because we've got nothing to protect. There's no image to protect. You notice this sometimes on holidays, when you go away on holidays, and you assume that you're never going to meet the people again. So you talk about anything and everything. And then, of course, you come back home, and you find they live down the road. <laughs> <laughs> you try and remember, what did I say? When divorce was being introduced into Ireland, I remember, well, prior to the referendum, there was an article in one of the papers, and it was detailing the causes of marital breakdown. And it said that, according to people who had suffered a marital breakdown, that 11% of the marriages which did break down, broke down because of infidelity. And 63% broke down because of lack of communication which is stunning. The third impediment to communication is where we speak from the lower intellect or the lower heart. Not the, the highest intellect where reason resides or the higher heart where there's real purity of heart. And what you'll find is that if a person is speaking from the lower intellect and they're speaking to an emotional-based person, the emotional-based person <coughs> thinks they're so cold and uncaring. That's how they will look on them. And if a person operating from the lower intellect is listening to a person speaking from the lower heart, they will think that the emotional-based person is all over the place, that they are just, as it's phrased in the material, speaking from a sentimental swamp of non-comprehension. And it's an important point to appreciate this, that a reasoned answer will not satisfy a devotional person. And a devotional answer will not satisfy a reasoning person. In the vast majority of cases between husband and wife, there's a different balance of reason and devotion. And this is what often causes difficulties in communication. And if I can just, and I'm going to absolutely exaggerate, I think I'm going to exaggerate a situation, to give you a sense of the difference. If you could imagine, say, that myself and my wife are invited to a wedding, and it's a friend of both of us, a close friend of both of us. But prior to receiving the invitation, I had already committed myself and my wife to attend some business function or whatever it is. And it's not possible to get out of that. So we are unable to attend the wedding. Now, if I say to my wife, I'll ring up the person and tell them, we can't go. I see a look of fear come over my wife at the thought of me actually delivering the message. And she would say, no, 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 I'll do it. I'll ring them. 
Now, let's say I did make the phone call. It would last about three minutes. It would be purely factual, as far as I'm concerned. I simply deliver the facts. Unfortunately, we have a prior engagement. We can't attend the wedding. I hope it goes exceptionally well, and we meet you for dinner after the honeymoon. That's it. All I'm concerned is that I deliver accurate facts to the person so that they understand why we cannot attend the wedding. And that would last about three minutes. If my wife makes the phone call, it lasts about 45 minutes. And the conversation will involve, have you selected the shoes yet to go with the dress? Are the flowers ordered? And a million other factors. And somewhere in the middle of the conversation, it will be, unfortunately, we can't come to the wedding. And then there will be 25 minutes of, are you sure now you're not upset about this? This will be said about 15 times, an apology after apology after apology. This is absolutely valid speech. The interest of my wife is to ensure that the other person is not upset, that everything is at peace at the end of the conversation. What I'm interested in is that the facts have been transferred. And if the person gets upset, well, that's their fault. (laughs) Didn't I deliver the facts? Why, Why are they so upset? You would think I planned it or something. So this is the difference between, I've exaggerated it to make the point, but there's a lot of misunderstanding because we don't realize that one person is listening from a devotional center and another person is speaking from a reasoning or rational center. If you don't recognize that, it's very hard to communicate fully, to really understand what the other person is saying or feeling. The fourth factor, as regards impediments to communication, is retaining speech to myself. And this is known as keeping the best bit or the most valuable bit to myself. In this situation, something needs to be said and we will not say it or feel we cannot say it. It's suppressed. Again, a couple of examples to highlight this. Many, many years ago, uh, I trained as an accountant and I was advising a man as regards to his business and the business was in serious trouble. This is about 25 years ago. It needed something like £10,000 in order to survive. And all the ordinary sources of finance had been tried and no money was forthcoming. So the man was facing the fact that his business would go bust and there were about 15 employees in the company at the time. And I was with him and I said to him, why don't you ask your father? And he said, no, I, I, I can't ask my father. And I said, well, does your father actually have £10,000? He said, well, he actually does have £10,000, but I can't ask him. And I said, you are to ask your father for the money. And he said, no, he said, look, my father's never had £200 in his life. And he's just retired and he's commuted part of his pension. And the sum of money that came from commuting the pension was £10,000. This is the only time he's ever had £10,000. And I'm not going to ask him. And I said to him, well, you are his son. You have the right to ask your father for the money. Now, your father equally has the right to say no, but you have the right to ask. So I eventually persuaded him to ask his father. And I said to him, if you do ask your father for the money, I said, all you have to do, you have to be clear in your mind that you will repay him, come what may. Even if the business goes bust subsequently, you will give your father back this £10,000, come what may. And the second thing, if you do do this, and you do repay your father, having saved the business, let's say, 
your father, every night he goes down to the pub, will tell everybody in the pub that he saved that pup of a son of his business. That he thought he didn't need them anymore, but he still needed them. And he will feel proud to have helped his son. The anyway, man asked his father, and the father gave the money, and the man repaid the father, and every night the father went down to the pub. He told the same story about how that young pup still needed him. The second type, this is where a sort of a pride gets in our way and will not allow us to ask or to speak that which should be spoken. Another example of it is not speaking praise or gratitude when it springs to mind. And this is an appalling admission on my part, but there are some times that, say, I would come home and my wife may have got her hair done or for some reason she looks even much more beautiful than normal. And it strikes me, my God, she looks beautiful. And I think, ah, I won't bother saying it. I don't know why I don't say it, but I don't say it. Or maybe she cooks something, and it, again, it's particularly delicious. And I, I, I notice that it's particularly delicious. And I don't bother to tell her. And there's an awful lot of unspoken praise and gratitude. It's such a pity. The last impediment to communication, and in a way it's much lesser because it's more a gross factor, is a lack of true education. It is maybe not having the words or the vocabulary or the grammar to accurately say what you feel or think. How do we improve communication? Well, the first factor is to drop the ego, i.e. drop ideas of myself and others. When you do drop ideas of yourself and others, what comes is full acceptance of yourself and others. And with acceptance comes observation, with observation understanding, and with understanding comes true communication. The second factor to improve communication is that knowledge given in love and received in love is most potent. So one never withdraws love to correct somebody. You never allow the anger to displace the love. You may need to speak firmly, but you make sure that even your firm speech or your correcting speech is delivered in love because that which is delivered in love and received in love is most potent. The third factor is to introduce an absoluteness into one's speech. So if you have done wrong, you say, I unreservedly apologize. Or if you don't know what you're saying, you say, I'm talking complete rubbish. I accept full responsibility. I love you unconditionally. That gives a tremendous power to one's speech. The fourth factor to improving communication is to listen to the sound of your own voice. It's a remarkable thing. We expect everybody else to listen to the sound of our voice, and yet we don't do it ourselves. And you notice if you've ever been taped, particularly secretly, it's a frightening experience when then it is really relayed back to you. 
you wonder why those Japanese cannot improve those tape machines so as to reproduce the quality of your voice. Well, if you do listen to the sound of your voice, the first thing it does, it reveals the emotional content. And you may be surprised at times by the emotional content behind what you're saying. And in listening to it, it will purify it. Because you're listening to it, there will be the full person behind it, and because there's the full person behind it, it will have authority. Also, because you're listening to it, other people will find it easy to listen to it as well. We often aren't aware of the sound of our own voice. Once, a number of years ago, I was saying something to my middle daughter, or whatever I said anyway, and my wife was also in the room, and five minutes later I looked up and I noticed my daughter wasn't in the room anymore. So I said to Anne, where's Sarah? And Anne said, she's probably downstairs crying. And I said, for what? I said, she didn't say anything. So anyway, I go downstairs and I find this daughter crying on a pillow, and so we, uh, I made amends for whatever I had said, and I came back uh, upstairs. And my wife said to me, she said, you have no idea of the power in your voice when you speak. You have no idea sometimes the emotional power in it and the effect it has on your daughter when you're speaking to her. And it was very interesting to become aware of that because at times it was too brutal. You need to make, some of you have to make a point firmly, but it shouldn't have aggression or violence in it. The next factor for improving communication is that when you are entering a conversation with someone, it's important to have the qualities of both sides. So don't be just a father speaking to a son or a mother to a son or a daughter or whatever. You have to have the quality of the father and the son in you when you're speaking to a son. So, for example, it's like you call in your son from the back garden and you tell him look you can't play football anymore you need to do some study and as he goes past you he kicks the ball at you and declares his undying love for every other father in the region except you and you need to speak to him about this because this is not a way a son should speak to his father but you need to understand what it is like to be a little boy prevented from finishing a football game and told to come in to study does that make sense? You need to have the qualities of the sun in you as you speak to him. This applies with employers and employees and vice versa. You need to have the qualities of both sides. The sixth factor to improving communication is to speak naturally. But how does one speak naturally? You speak as if there's no one else in the room. If I asked one of you to come up and give the second half to this talk, it might distort your speech somewhat. But if you were talking on your own in a room, you would have no difficulty. The idea is to speak as if there's no one else in the room, no one other than yourself in the room. It's like sometimes uh, a person may have difficulty explaining something to me. And I say, well, explain it as you would write it in your secret diary, which nobody is ever going to read. 
and then the person has no difficulty in expressing the words or expressing whatever they have to say. If you do speak naturally, then it will be truthful and then it will reflect you. The next factor for improving communication is to remember that there are only two activities in conversation. One is speaking and the other is listening. Rehearsing what you're going to say while the other person is speaking is not a valid activity. So you waiting for them to run out of breath so that you can pounce in with the incredibly valid point that you want to make is not a valid activity in speech. The idea is if they're speaking, you listen and you wait until they have finished. You wait till the very last word and then you speak and so on. The eighth factor is to practice what you preach. And therefore you must be the same on the inside as the outside. The heart, the mind and the body need to be as one. So for example, you can teach a parrot to say the Our Father, but it doesn't mean that you've got another Christian in the house. In fact, the parrot may be the only Christian in the house. The next factor for improving communication is do not speak to someone who's not listening. Now, you will be surprised how much we just continue to speak even though somebody's not listening to us. But do not. You just stop. If no one is listening, do not speak. Very soon I'm going to stop. <laughs> the next factor as regards improving communication, is to conserve speech. So do not say anything unnecessary. Avoid idle chatter and avoid repetition. So did you get that? Avoid repetition. Very good. <laughs> and the worst of all factor, which if you can eliminate, will really, really improve communication is to avoid internal talk. This is talking to yourself. This is where you have a ventriloquist dummy inside your head. And basically, he's got multiple characters. He can be the bank manager, the dog, he can be the son, the husband, anything. You talk to him and you put words inside his mouth and he talks back to you. And you rehearse interviews and all sorts of things, what you would say to the Pope if you ever met him. And you have words inside the Pope coming back to you. <laughs> and this is where you rehearse future events. Your acceptance speech on being nominated to be the Secretary General of the United Nations. <laughs> and you go over all the past events. And of course you can say and think of all the things that you couldn't think of at the time what you know is that you never lose an argument in retrospect. You are witty, cutting, sharp once it's all over. And the third thing, of course, is to avoid is the imaginings. As was said, the acceptance speech on being nominated to be the Secretary General of the United Nations. All these sort of uh, imaginings. If I asked you to write a play tomorrow, a three-act play, let's say, with 25 characters, You'd say, impossible. But every day we compose a play in our head, at least one play. 
full of many, many characters, and we provide all the words. Speech is man's great gift. It gives him dominion over the animals, so you can control an elephant who is 20 or 50 times your size with speech. It gives you dominion over men. So if you're like a Napoleon, you can instruct a million men to walk into the depths of Russia in the winter, and they march. The measure of a man is his word. It is his greatest gift and his worst enemy, if abused. If abused, what we do is we pass sentence on ourselves. And to pass sentence is to be like a judge. So we pass sentence and then we live under that sentence. So we may decide early in our lives that I'm not as good as everybody else. And so we live in the, in the prison of inferiority. So do not underestimate the power of sound. You can go into any room in the world and you can say, shh, and the room will fall silent. It's a tiny little sound, but it has the power to make people silent. Now, the most powerful way to use sound is in meditation. In our day, we commune with the world, with the outside world, and this is like going to the marketplace. It's very noisy, and we greet everybody. And then we come home in the evening, and we commune with our family. And here, the conversation is much quieter, and there may be less speech, but it's actually deeper communication. But in meditation, you commune with yourself. And here it is totally quiet, and yet it is the deepest of all communication. And it is the most satisfying of all. So, the principle is to learn to speak the truth pleasantly, not pleasant untruth. The Shankaracharya says, one needs first of all to learn to speak the truth of whatever is contained in his mind, and having expressed his mental contents of resolutions or aspirations in speech, he must act according to that speech. And this is not simple. It needs great courage and trust. And this is possible when examples are available. So let us be courageous in our speech, and let us be living examples. And that's it. So thank you very much. Thank you. What questions would you like to ask? Could you say a bit more about um, speaking the truth pleasantly rather than a pleasant untruth in difficult situations? For example, a child will often speak or blurt out the truth. And it can be in social situations and it can be quite embarrassing. For the child? And for the adults. <laughs> Which adult? The mother adult? Or the person receiving the comment, for example, a child might say this food is horrible when somebody, you know, made a special occasion for them or that. Or the child might be given a special birthday gift and say, I don't like it, it's boring. 
So, and that's the truth. Absolutely, so, definitely so is. <laughs> well, the, the child it just needs to be educated with regard to that. But what you don't teach it, which is what we normally do, is we uh, teach it to speak pleasant untruths. So you don't teach it to say, that is the most wonderful food I've ever tasted. But they can say, thank you very much for preparing the food. They can express gratitude for the, for the care and attention that went into it. You don't speak a lie to appease other people's egos. Does that make sense? It can be quite a difficult thing. And even as an adult, if somebody you know, says, what do you think of my new hairstyle or whatever? The whole thing is to always speak with love in your heart. And to really communicate that love when you do speak. That you are speaking with love in your heart. And then you can say the most remarkable things to people. And they will receive them well. And if they don't receive them well, you still don't not say. Because out of your love for them, they do need to hear them. So if somebody gives you a very expensive birthday present that you don't like, you just say honestly, no, I don't like it. No, no, that's not what you say. You thank them for their remarkable generosity. And the next question will be, well, do you like it? What you'll always do, you will always find something that you can say. So, it's an art without telling lies. So somebody says to you, do you like my dress? And you say, I think yellow is really beautiful on you. Or you think that's, you say that style suits you or whatever. There's, all, there's something about the dress. The button at the top is <laughs> the best button I've ever seen. <laughs> or, or you say something like, you always look beautiful to me. But you need to mean it. It needs to be true. There is a way of speaking the truth pleasantly, not pleasant untruths. Now, it takes courage, uh, as was said at the end of the talk, and it takes practice. What do you want the people who love you most? Do you want them to be truthful with you? Do you want to have a truthful relationship? Well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You don't lose a friend by speaking the truth. If the relationship can't take the truth, it isn't really a relationship at all. And there is a way of saying it. If you look at the words of Jesus, they're actually quite punchy at times. But doesn't stop a thousand million people trying to follow them. So avoid uh, sentimentality and trying to be nice. There's much more to a human being than being nice. As I said, if you hold in your heart that these words are being spoken because of love for the other person, then the fact that they have a punch to them 
normally does not cause an adverse reaction. And even if it does cause an adverse reaction, in the fullness of time, a person will normally come back and express their gratitude to you. I once had to speak very firmly to my son. I mean, very, very firmly to him. He came back about six months later and he said, I'm really grateful for the way you spoke to me. I needed to wake up. So the key is the emotional content. And it's not really true. The children do not cause offense. When they say, this soup has got bits in it, or other profound statements like that, it doesn't cause offense, because they say it in total innocence. They're not trying to hurt anybody. What you have is a host or hostess that lacks confidence. They're taking offense even when none is given. They actually manufacture the offense, because the child is not trying to offend. It's normally the mother or father of the child who gets embarrassed by what the child has said and then tries to teach it to lie and then gives out to it when it lies to you. So pretty confusing for the child. Just give me the list of those of who I'm supposed to lie to and the ones who I'm supposed to speak the truth to. The best thing is to have no association with untruth. Be a woman of truth and learn to speak it pleasantly. So there's a way of saying everything. There is. The love for the person will guide you in the selection of the words. Yes, that's it, really. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, anybody else? Here, John. Oh, sorry. I didn't see. Sorry, it's being yeah. grabbed. Sometimes when I listen to politicians and the answers they give to direct questions, especially our present Taoiseach, and the fuzziness of the an answer and the uh, obscure answers that he gives is so frustrating. It's like he, he's not saying what he really thinks and really feels. Does, does this make one a liar? Absolutely. The reason we have politicians like that, and it's not confined to, to Ireland, is because the world accepts them. We don't demand men and women of truth. As has happened in the church recently, if priests do not uphold the way of life that they have chosen and abuse it in, in a way, we absolutely turn our back on them and are horrified by the behavior. But we accept it in the politician because we think it's practical. But it's not practical at all. It's just corrupt. And when you have corrupt, you know, effectively corrupt or liars making laws, then it's very hard to obey those laws. So then you create a corrupt people. So therefore law is weakened. And it requires more and more laws and more and more people break them. And what's required is people who will speak the truth. Before the Second World War, Winston Churchill said it as it was. 
He said Hitler was a maniac. And one needs to be careful, or take action, in fact. Chamberlain was an appeaser. And the reason why the English people were willing to follow Churchill was because he did speak the truth in relation to Hitler. And if a politician spoke the truth, it would be astounding what, let's say, in terms of Ireland, what the people of Ireland would do for such a man or woman. A living example of it is Mandela. You know, the, the, the sacrifice that the South African people have made, the blacks and the whites and the brown and yellow, all these races, the sacrifice that they have made, the willingness to forego stances and really strongly held beliefs is because there was one man of integrity, remarkable integrity. So you can bring about tremendous change in a people if you are a man or a woman of truth. But it takes courage. We're not producing courageous politicians yet, unfortunately. But that is the real need. Because people will do remarkable things for a truthful man or woman. Only a, a sort of a low-grade human being will sacrifice truth for power or expediency or any of these things. I don't know if you've ever heard any of the Martin Luther King Jr. speeches. He didn't pull back on his words. And he knew that his words were effectively going to condemn him to an early death. And that's why they're so powerful still. Yes, sorry, this lady here in the front. You spoke about communicating the truth, that it might be hurtful. I wonder if you could talk more about that. You gave an example then later on about the wedding that you mightn't be able to attend yes. and how your wife would uh, speak for 30 minutes or 5 minutes and then you would just do a quick. But if the people hearing you are hurt by the way you tell the truth, is that, how do you, what have you to say about that in, to do with the earlier part of your speech? What I'm really trying to point out in that it would be inappropriate to deliver a two-minute message which albeit would convey all the essential facts because a wedding is a very emotional situation and it's very important to people so you wouldn't just do the old telegram bit can't be there, have fun, see you later that would be invalid that's not a speech delivered in love with love there would be consideration for the receiver of the message so you would not lie, but the speech would reflect the need of the other person to be at rest. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, is there anything more you can say about communicating truth without hurt? Well, you can't sort of rehearse for these things. That's the trouble. If you gave a specific event, a specific situation, it might be easier to answer it. No, there, there is not a specific event. It's just that I was thinking about what you said. Yes. 
the reason we think it is so difficult, if I'm judging this correctly, that people do think this is difficult, is because we really haven't decided that we are going to be men and women of truth. Once you make that decision, when you say, I'm not going to lie, then it becomes easier. You have to make the decision, first of all, that I'm not going to speak pleasant untruths. This is not the sort of person I am, and I'm not going to project myself in this way. Then it becomes easy. It's not that you're left with no words. It's as if your intelligence opens up. So, if I can just give an example of a man speaking pleasant untruths. There was a man attending the part one philosophy maybe 15 years ago. And he spoke about how his wife had a fixation with interest rates. There was many an evening he would come home and she'd say, I heard in the news that interest rates are going up. And he told me this. He'd dread coming home. He would sort of listen to the six o'clock news and if there was anything mentioned that interest rates were going to go up, he'd say, oh my God, this is going to be terrible tonight. And she would be very happy then when there was a half a percent cut in the interest rates. So her mood went up and down with the interest rates. And if you remember, 15 years ago, interest rates were going up, so she was going down. Now, he said that what he used to do is that he, he basically used to lie to her. She would say she heard some news about interest rates going up, and he said, well, actually, I read an article in a magazine that she didn't read where it projected that they were going down. So, that, you know, horrendous tension with regard to this. The fact of the matter is, the man wasn't listening to his wife at all. She wasn't concerned about interest rates at all. Now, this is rather obvious, but he was, he was a man, so it wasn't so obvious. <laughs> what she was concerned about was losing the family home. So I said to him, go home and ask her, does she trust you that you will always provide a home for this family? And if there's any doubt in her, swear to her that you will. Irrespective of interest rates, this family will have a home to reside in. Make that promise to her. That's the reassurance she needs, not whether interest rates are going to be low or anything like that. And that is truthful speech. So there's always a way. And as I said, you know, when somebody comes to you and, and let's say it's something like, is the dress nice? The person is not really asking about the dress. Albeit they're the words of the question, that's not really the question. So answer the real question. And they'll be absolutely satisfied. If you don't answer the real question, the ones that's not being asked, you'll get asked lots of questions. I mean, again, I've told this before, but when I went to university, I had an older brother, so he had emigrated at, that st at this stage. Uh, I was at university, and my younger brother was only a year or two younger than me. So from having four children in the home, there was now one and a bit children hanging around. The rest of us were out on the town or abroad. And I had started at university, and I would come home in the afternoon, and my mother would say, was anybody absent? I'd say, mother... There are 7,000 people in the university. 
and statistically speaking, there must have been 500 of them absent today. And I don't have their names and addresses. And she would ask, what were the lectures like? And I said, Mum, look, you're not interested in economic history or strategic management. And it used to be impossible to answer these questions. Even things like, what did you do today? You think, you know, I, I, I had coffee. Anyway, they were impossible to answer. I used to actually go into the library. It was the one thing that got me studying, because at least I could stay in there for hours without having to go home and face all these questions. Anyway, this went on for about six or nine months. And one day, I realized my mother just wanted to talk to her son. That's all she wanted to do. And the more I hid behind a newspaper or watching cartoons on television, the more inane the questions became. And I really did begin to think that euthanasia had some practical <laughs> applications. Anyway, so what I decided to do, I would, I would come home. I wouldn't hide behind this newspaper or turn on some cartoon channel. I would just talk to my mother. And so I would give her my full attention. And instead of these dreadful, you know, elongated conversations, what there were, there were full, or let's say shorter conversations which were satisfying to both sides. And it's like if I invited you to my house for a meal, and so you, you, know, you, you hadn't dined for a couple of hours previously, and then I flicked over a pea at you, and then one slice of a carrot, the meal would go on for a very, very long time, and it would always be dissatisfying. And that's the way the conversations were between myself and my mother. But once I decided that we would just communicate, then they were intelligent questions and we had full communication and I was satisfied and she was satisfied. So a lot of the time, the lying, if you want to call it the lying, emerges because we're not really connecting with what the person is telling us. And you really do have to listen. You know, as I said, I could have been stupid enough to think that my wife was just giving me a bit of information that some person she knew had got a brand new car. You could go away thinking that's what you were told. But what she was actually telling me was she had lost confidence in the 1957 car that she was still driving. <laughs> and that's what needed to be responded to. So you find it's not difficult to speak the truth if you really connect with the person. Because they know you have connected with them. You know, it really is communion. Which is quite rare. It's like being on the inside of the other person. Do you recognize that? Where you're actually on their inside. You become one with them. Well then you can say anything. Okay, thank you. Yes, anybody else? I'd just like to say, first of all, I've really, I really enjoyed your lecture. Thank you. Record that now. <laughs> <laughs> You've spoken a lot about how you should be truthful and honest to your loved ones and family yeah. members and friends. And your enemies. Yes, that's what I wanted to come to. Um, I found that... 
in my life, the two times when I've gotten in serious, serious trouble was when I spoke the truth. Yeah. And can I give you an example? Yes, well, absolutely. Just, just say it's a, a work situation and your boss makes a decision that is very unjust yes. in an overall respect. And we'll say everybody that you're working with decides, yes, this is terrible, this is absolutely disgraceful, and a big meeting is called, and then all of a sudden the boss says, okay, what does everybody think? And suddenly everybody is quiet. And you sit there and you think, well, should I say something? Because I really feel personally that this is absolutely outrageous. So you find yourself saying what you think and what everybody else is thinking, but in, in the meantime, your boss goes absolutely mad and everybody stays quiet and you're completely on your own. And I, I've, I've found myself in two situations like that and I'm just wondering, what do you do in a situation like that? Perhaps I've asked myself the question, maybe I'm not right. Mm. Because I know you said earlier on that if you have to keep on repeating a point, well then maybe you're not in the right. And sometimes I find that I, I have to keep on repeating a point because I think that the person isn't listening to me. But maybe I'm, how do I know when I'm right? How do you really well, know when you're well, right? Well, when somebody has made an error, do not take the stance that you are free from error and they are erroneous. Because now you're taking the higher ground. And it's a criticism that is challenging in itself, but it's particularly challenging if it's coming from a so-called subordinate. So, the facts have to be delivered without criticism. You know, when a doctor says to a patient, this is a very serious illness, the patient doesn't get really angry and say, how dare you tell me that? Why? Because there's no criticism. But none at all. The first thing is to not to think that the man, in this case the boss, has made a mistake. You always separate the person from the event. So there is a mistake, not you made it. When I was a younger man, I started off an accountancy practice. And I had a very nice secretary who made the occasional mistake. And I was sort of an abrupt, aggressive little accountant. I would say, you made a mistake here, you made a mistake there, and you made a mistake here and there, let's say, in a letter. And when I would get it back the second time, there would be more mistakes. And you could see that, in fact, at least I noticed after about eight months or so, that when I spoke to her, she immediately lost confidence in herself. So I changed the same, I used to point to the letter and not to her. I say, there's a mistake here. There's a mistake here. And you leave the person free. In fact, you stand on the same side of the desk as they are, emotionally. And you point to a common thing. So both of you are looking at the same thing. You unite both people in the event. And that's the key. If you are speaking to your boss as somebody hard done by in an opposite camp, well, unless he's very mature emotionally, he's going to get defensive or aggressive about the thing. You have to stand on the same side as him. What does a boss want? He wants his particular department to run efficiently and, let's say, make profits or whatever. So you always guide it to that. You say, this would help 
produce efficiency, or health produce harmony, or health produce profits. Does that make sense? Because I, I would like to think that I'm a subtle person. But just if you're trying to be as subtle as possible... No, no, no don't try to be as subtle as possible. Then you're just somebody who's read a book on how to be subtle. Mm -hmm. Never adopt a higher moral ground. All it is is that you've seen an error in an action. This doesn't mean that you're better than the, the person who carried out the action. You just happen to be fortunate to see the error. And your job is to point out the error. For example, in a, say in a restaurant, if you're given lumpy soup, or cold soup, or whatever it is, you have no right to leave the restaurant without telling the manager or sending the soup back. All you're doing is condemning that person to go and bust. And then that's not fair. That person is making efforts, albeit not perfect efforts, to run a restaurant. They need to know. And the boss, they don't instigate these moves with an idea of let's create chaos and hatred amongst the employees. That's not the intention. So an error is being made. It's a misinterpretation of what would be of benefit. So if you don't adopt the ground that I'm right and you're wrong, that greatly helps. The second thing is, it's often very useful to say, this is how I experience it, rather than it is wrong. So I just give an example from my own life. Quite often I have to come home late at night. So late at night would be 10.30 or 11. And my wife had got into the habit of going to bed before I came home. And I don't like that. I don't like coming home to a dark house. It's just, it's just awful. You've worked all day and you come home and there's... Even the cat doesn't say hello to you. Type of thing. <laughs> you know, there's just this dark house. And maybe a little message saying, please leave money for tomorrow. You know, st <laughs> stuck to a cup or something like this. So I remember saying to her, you know, I just said to her, when I come home and I see all the lights are out, I just, it just deflates me. I just, it's just so nice if you're up and we have a cup of tea together and some conversation, and then you go to bed. Now, there's no criticism there. It's like saying, you know, I like more salt on my, my beans. You know, something profound like that. <laughs> and you're just letting the other person know your inner world. And people are normally very grateful to be let in. And uh, again, just to tell you, there was one man that I advised. Well, I advised two partners, and he took offense to the way the advice was given, and he felt it had been sided with one man, i.e. not himself, against himself. And he sued his now ex-partner. He met with me, and I said to him, you're completely in the wrong, 100% in the wrong. I said, we can be friends, but we can't do business together. And we are very good friends, but we won't do business together. So you can do that. You have to make sure that your heart is not stained by the event. 
you mustn't take offense at other people's errors. They're just errors. Every action you undertake every day, you are pursuing your true and substantial happiness. Sometimes you make a mistake and you're miserable all day. And sometimes in your pursuit of your true and substantial happiness, you cause other people to suffer a bit. But your initial motivation behind your actions is that you want to be happy and free. And so does your boss. And if we can understand that, that your children don't go into sitting rooms and say, let's knock a vase over today. They don't do that. They do knock over vases. They don't say, let's see if mum can blow a fit today. Let's lose the glasses. That normally gets her going. But they do lose glasses. But there's no intent. Another speaker tried this with an audience. If I say, do you ever get up in the morning saying, I'm going to cause offence today? Anybody in this room make that resolution when they get up in the morning? Now, if we, let's say there are six million people on this island. Nobody gets up in the morning saying, I'm going to cause offence today. Yet there's lots of offence being taken. And nobody sets out to cause it. Is that not remarkable? And it's simply to realise that. Children standing in front of the telly are not trying to stop you watch the match. They're just standing in front of the telly. Children don't interrupt. They just speak when they have something to say. But we're always getting annoyed with them. And as I said, bosses make errors. And so do subordinates. You know, when you're teaching a child, uh, you're teaching it A, B, C, does a good A and a pretty average B and a C that looks like an F, you don't say, you idiot. You say, excellent A, a little bit more work on the B, and we're going to have to try a lot harder on the C. But if it's an adult, we say, you blooming idiot, do you not know what a C is? Well, we're, we're very condemnatory. And that shouldn't be in our speech. If you say, what should our speech convey? It should convey knowledge or truth and love. And then it's the most wonderful thing. Okay. Yes, anybody else? There's a gentleman here. Basically, um, it's a sad fact that um, most of society is led around like a dog with two emotions, pleasure and pain. It's also a sad fact that people will only make a change in their life when somebody has communicated a certain sense of pain towards them. It's like, for example, when I heard a quote once before where somebody had asked a parent, would you ever uh, die for your children? And he said, of course. But he came back with, okay, would you, would you ever live for them? It is a sad fact that we are led around like dogs, and we tend to only make changes in our life when there's enough pain there to cause us leverage to make a change. So how do you communicate that? You know, I know you're going to do that with love, but if we're centered and focused on only making a change when there's enough pain, how do you get over that hurdle? Yes, well, what you have to do is you have to communicate to people that it is better for them, not better for others, 
it is better for them if they operate with reason and love and not from pleasure and pain. Most people think that the second commandment which uh, Jesus gave was love thy neighbor. And they sort of think this is for the neighbor's sake. This is to make your neighbor happy. But it's not the commandment. The commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And you're the beneficiary. The Christian message, along with all the other great messages, are messages for the practitioner's happiness, not for other people's happiness. So, one has to show that if people will operate via reason and love, they will benefit from it. If you uh, happen to employ people and you treat them with respect and you try to maximize the possibility of them satisfying their ambitions, etc., 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 you will get the best employees. You won't lose by it. You never lose by your employees earning lots and lots of money. I remember a wise man in business said to me, a bad employee will cost you money no matter how little you pay him. And a good employee will make you money no matter how much you pay him. And it's so true. The argument for love and reason has to be shown to people. And the simplest way to show it is to show it in your life. Now, this is a horrendous statement, but anyway, when I was about 40 or 42, I made a, made a resolution to be an honest man. Now, it's pretty late in life to be making these resolutions, but anyway. And it doesn't mean that I rob banks at weekends as a pastime. But I was no longer happy with the, either the honesty of speech or the honesty of actions. And I decided, I'm going to live as an honest man. And there was a certain trepidation in this. I could see, you know, bank balances dwindling as this honesty began to manifest. But the complete opposite has happened. With virtue comes wealth. It's a fact. If you want to employ a plumber or something like that, who do you want? Do you want to employ a reliable person? or a maniac. You want an honest solicitor. Now, that's a dream, obviously, but... Yeah. You want an honest solicitor. You want an honest accountant. You want all these sort of things. Well, people pay for what they want. But you have to show that virtue triumphs, or love triumphs, or reason triumphs, and then people will imitate. This is what the Shankaracharya said. This is not simple. It needs great courage and trust. And this is possible when examples are available. See, people are not going to be courageous and full of trust until they see examples of men and women who speak truthfully or live truthfully then they will follow. In sort of a political environment, Gandhi showed how non-violence worked. And Martin Luther King Jr. followed. And Nelson Mandela in the end followed. 
because there was a living example. It's very obvious that love is far better than pleasure and pain. It's much better for everybody. But does love not hurt? No. You made that change at 41, 42 in your life because there was enough pain there for you to say, I'm not going to be that person anymore. So I could speak truth to somebody and I could speak it in a way that's coming straight from my heart and I could speak it in a way that's honest as well. And they could interpret it in a way that, you know, is painful for them, but it's the only way they're going to make a change in their life. No, you're wrong to think that change only comes about because of pain. Change comes about through reason. Realization, yeah. Yeah, well, but there's no pain involved. You're in a traffic jam, you're screaming like an idiot uh, as to why there are so many cars on the road. Reason enters like a shaft of light into the mind and tells you that your screaming doesn't remove one car from the road. And so you stop screaming. That's with reason. You also do it with love. You don't bring children to circuses to watch tired lines running around in a circle because of any pain. You do it out of love. When a child uh, comes home from Montessori school and has got about 25 dozen colored eggs and your eyes are beginning to glaze over after the first dozen and it says, no daddy, there's more to say. <laughs> it's not pain that keeps you lucky. It's love. Love is the great motivator. Only men and women who don't know love are moved by pleasure and pain. And it is such a pity. Such a pity. Because you are never, ever, ever going to create a life which is all pleasure and no pain. One follows the other. The satisfaction of the meal is followed by hunger. The rest of the night is followed by tiredness at the end of the day. They follow each other. You have to decide to live in a different world. And that world which philosophy offers is a world of love and reason. And then pleasure and pain make no difference. This is why you can love your children if they are physically ugly, if they're low in intelligence, and they're obnoxious in nature. Otherwise, most of us in this room would not have been loved. <laughs> we are the proof that love triumphs. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that you, you know this. You know that, that the behavior can never stop you loving someone. Again, I've told this before, but I told my daughter when she was 13 and she was making her break for independence and freedom while still coming to me for vast sums of money, I said to her, well, I love you and I will always love you and there's nothing you can do that will ever stop me loving you. There are many things you can do which will make me angry with you, but I will never stop loving you. And that has been the basis of our relationship. Because it's nothing to do with pleasure and pain. She has caused me great pleasure and caused me the occasional bits of pain. But the love has remained unmoved. And that's what you need to offer people. 
If you're only moved by pleasure and pain, you're no better than an animal. You may have a very, very nice dog, but you try and remove the bowl of food from him when he's hungry, and he'll bite you. Now, hopefully, husbands and wives should not do that to each other. But you must become a man of reason or a man of love. And how you will convince others is because it brings you happiness. And everybody wants to be happy. The man who founded the school uh, of philosophy worldwide, in his latter years, I managed to spend some time with him. And he was a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable man. Before I met him, I used to love sunny holidays. So I would only go to sunny locations and, you know, I would avidly read the forecasts. So you'd buy the local paper, which you couldn't understand, but you could read the little symbols where it had little clouds or a bit of a sun and a cloud, and you could also read the temperature for the next five days. And basically, my happiness temperature used to go up and down with the temperature. And I used to come back from holidays, people would say to you, do you have a good holiday? And you say, no, the weather wasn't great. Which is a remarkable answer to, did you have a good holiday? Or other times i say, it was a great holiday, the weather was fantastic. Anyway, this man, to go back to the original bit, this man, I spent a lot of time with him. And he used to sit out in the garden. When he was, in this stage, he was in his 80s. And I was sitting out with him. I used to have a chance to put all my questions to him, which I did. But there were times we would just sit there in silence. Anyway, it started to rain. And it was pretty cold now. And it started to rain. And I said to him, would you like to go in? Meaning, I'd like to go in. <laughs> would you like to go in? He said, no. I thought, all right. And so I sat there. And the rain poured down, and I got colder and colder and wetter and wetter. And we, we talked, and, and suddenly there was a moment where the pain associated with being cold and wet fell away. And it has never come back again. In other words, there's indifference here to whether it's sunny or rainy or cold or hot. It doesn't make any difference anymore. For some reason, in his presence, that idea was broken. And now it's, holidays are a delight because you're not tense waiting for the sun to come up. <laughs> Is that all right? Yeah, great. The light bulb just went on. You said the grossest impediments to... Uh Communicating. Yes. The lack of education. I would have thought that the more education you got, the better a communicator or more effective a communicator. So it would be kind of dependent on education. It is dependent on it, but it's not the, the all determining factor. For example, there's a man called Ramakrishna who was in the 19th century, died in the latter half of the 19th century. He couldn't read or write. But his message is unbelievable. He didn't have a tremendous vocabulary or command of language. And children don't. You know, children have very few words at the start, but they really communicate. Child comes up to you and says, 
Daddy, I love you. And it goes right into your heart. They don't have to add 15 adjectives from Roger's to Sora's to convey their message. But it is useful. It is useful to have a very wide vocabulary because words have a very precise meaning. And it does help with the precision. And you see people who they're not well educated and a sort of a frustration as they, they can't find the word. That's the point I was going to make as well, is to, for an expression. Yes. It's very hard if you don't, if you're not educated. Yes, yeah, so abs absolutely. But it's not the most important factor. It's important to be true to yourself. And that is just so much more important than your words. Really, the underlying emotion is the most powerful thing of all. And again, I've used this example before. Some of you will remember when the Pope came over to Ireland and he was to speak to an audience of young people. I think it was in Galway. And he started off and he said, young people of Ireland, I love you. And for about 10 or 15 minutes, everybody was standing up and applauding. And he was just bringing the applause on. Now, say we organized a little soapbox for you in the middle of Grafton Street and we gave you the script and you could say, young people of Ireland, I love you. You'd be locked up. <laughs> Not one person would stop and applaud you. Why? because the emotional content is different. If you read the New Testament, there are no big words in it. You take, love thy neighbor as thyself. Any, any word there people find confusing? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They're all tiny little words. And how is it 2,000 years later people can read these words and, and be moved by them? Because the power is actually still in them even in their written form, still there. So the real thing is, if you can speak from your heart, you will be a powerful man or woman. You will change the world. Most of us are speaking from our throat. Again, as an example, sometimes, say somebody loses their temper, and, and I'm going to make it a man and a woman, or a woman losing her temper, initially. And she screams some incredibly violent statement to the children. If you do that again, I'm going to cut your legs off or you know, something incredible like this. And the children just happily do whatever they're doing. And we make it then, you know, the, the father comes in and growls, stop that. Everybody freezes. Because it came from death. Never speak from here. The other way, sometimes when you have something very important to say, you take a deep breath before you say it. You sort of try and gather, and you try and speak from down there. Well, that's where to speak from. My older brother ratted on me smoking when I was 10. I was up to about three woodbines a day. It's pretty big stuff for a 10-year-old. And my older brother, who was at that stage smoking about 20 woodbines a day, ratted on me to my father. So my father called me into the sitting room, and he says... If I catch you smoking again, I'd kill you. <laughs> and I reckon he was speaking from his big toes. It came from so far down his body. So I couldn't go near a cigarette again, ever. I can still hear him. Even if I look at a cigarette, I feel guilty now. <laughs> <laughs> so what you find, anyway, is as I said, that the vocabulary is very useful. 
people should make an effort to increase their vocabulary. So if you learned one new word a week, you'd have 52 in a year, and 10 years, you'd have 520. You'd dramatically improve the clarity of what you're saying. Yes, there's a at the back there. What you've just said about your father and the cigarettes uh, kind of shows that reason doesn't really work. No, brute force worked in that situation. I, I mean, if, if, uh, if, I had, uh, if I had been, like as the mother of children, I would be explaining to them about lung cancer and uh, yes. all the other terrible things. They'd just laugh. Of course but, they would laugh. But your father, you know, but that... <laughs> you know, you, you, you don't this use communication is, is strange. You don't, uh, you don't use reason with a 10-year-old. Right, right. A 10-year-old will not stop eating sweets because you tell them all their teeth are going to fall out. And they won't study hard if you tell them that they'll get an inflation-proof pension when they're 65. So, right? so is there an they, age? Uh, I mean, I thought seven was the age of reason, but is there a, is there no, a, late, no, there's uh, a later age? It's 16. 16. And some and people never get to be 16. <laughs> Reason starts to develop after age 10. Starts to develop. And the full capacity is there at age 16. Though not mature, but the capacity there, just like the body may be fully grown at, say, 16, 17, or 18, but it can still be strengthened with exercise and that. But the, the full capacity of the body is there. Well, the same way with reason. And so... Up to age 10, what the child requires is reasonable direction. Uh, your directions need to be reasonable. You protect its absence of reason with your developed reason. After 10, you begin to awaken the reason in the child. And the idea is at 16, the child should be self-reliant. Now, what we tend to do is we unfortunately, is we tend to reason with children under 10 and then we don't develop their reason between 10 and 16 fully. You now have to explain and you have to get them to question their actions so that at age 16 they actually are self-reliant. They can then appeal to reason and love when they wish to decide on matters. But with a 10-year-old, reason will not work. You may give a child a reasonable explanation and it may say, I agree, but that doesn't mean that reason has operated in the child. It just means it agrees with you. It's one of those happy coincidences that you should be eternally grateful for. And just to finish with this, just so we, we, we understand, again, I've told this story before. When I was waiting to go into a dentist once and fear was in every molecule of my body. I decided to distract the mind by reading. There was a woman's own magazine in the reception area. And there was a story told by a lady where her son had come home, her five-year-old son had come home and asked her, how come it gets dark at night and then it gets bright in the morning? So the mother was a very inventive mother and she got out an orange and a torch. And she shone the the torch on the orange and said, now do you see the way that side is bright and the other side is a bit darker? And then she swiveled the orange around and then she said, now do you see the way the side that was dark has now become bright? And she then related it to the earth and the sun and she said to the boy, do you understand? And he said, yes, 
But what happens if it's an apple? <laughs> so, they don't reason. When you say to them, don't put your feet up on that couch, as far as they're concerned, it means that couch. It takes them a while. And you see, you'd see it in their learning. So a child will learn by root originally, not by reason. So it'll go, you know, one times one is one and one times two, and it'll sing them away. You say to it, what are seven times seven? It'll say 49 with absolute certainty. It doesn't know why it's 49, but it knows it is 49. And let's say it's gone up to its 10 times tables, and you say, what are 11 times 12? He says, I don't want to play that game anymore. <laughs> it hasn't a clue. If you said, look, is it closer to one or one billion and 47? It hasn't a clue. If you said, the answer is three. You say, okay, three. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> right. And that's the way a child is. It doesn't have the capacity of reason. But let's say, take with mathematics. If you learn these things off by rote over and over again, one day an understanding arises. And you understand the laws of mathematics, let's say of multiplication. And then if somebody gives you a sum that you've never ever met before, you can take the laws and apply them to that unknown situation and be absolutely certain of coming up with the right answer. And this is what reason is like. Initially, you provide the reasoned directions and guidance to the child so that it experiences the truth and the fruit of truth. And it experiences it over and over and over again. And then reason begins to awaken, and as I said, you feed it. And then one day, it has reason. And then it can meet new situations, and it applies reason to these new situations, and comes up with answers which will lead to its true and substantial happiness without causing misery for others. Um, we're, just, we're talking about speaking truthfully. I just want to ask about, about listening truthfully. I know a particular individual that would be kind of prone to telling fairly tall tales. I've known this person a long time, and I, I'd know a lot of the stories where, like, they would maybe untruthful yes. or whatever. And it, it kind of gets to a stage now when I'm listening that I know you've tried not to be judgmental, but yes. I find myself being judgmental about it. And I, and, some stories may be true, but it's got to a stage now that like, I kind of, everything is treated with suspicion. And I'm not listening truthfully because, no, absolutely. because um, I'm being judgmental about it. And I'm just going, yeah, 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 yeah. I like, generally try to make an effort to, to listen to people. But with this particular person, uh, to be truthful in that situation, like, you could question the stories and find holes in them. But then you could hurt the person as well. Well, doing that because he's only telling these stories and they don't really stand up to much scrutiny. Or no, absolutely. But I mean, it's an excellent question. How do you listen truthfully? The way you listen truthfully is you listen fully. One of the reasons that people lie so easily is because they're not being listened to. But if you really listen to a person, and with eye contact also, because people find it very hard to lie when they're looking into your eyes. Children will always lie to you from upstairs. <laughs> so you say, what are you doing upstairs? And they say, nothing. So you ask them to come downstairs and say, what were you doing upstairs? And I, I was setting fire to the mattress. <laughs> uh, 
So the first thing to do is to make sure that there is eye contact. I don't mean you pin the person to the back of the, to a wall, but you make sure there is eye contact. The second thing is you really, really listen to them. Now, when I say you listen to them, what you find is you're listening to the words, right? And you're hearing that these words exaggerate a particular tale. But what you're not hearing is a man who has no confidence in himself, who thinks he's a bigger man when he has a bigger story. You're not hearing the underlying emotion. If you really begin to listen to this man, and you hear that underlying emotion of a lack of confidence in himself, and you do not judge it, he will feel at ease with you. And the stories will come back to truthful stories. And that's the key to it. If I may say so, it is your job to relieve him of this false idea about himself. And you will do that by really listening to him. And understanding that this is why he does it. One thing you, you've got to understand, every time somebody speaks, they're telling you something about themselves. When somebody says to you, you don't care about me, what they're saying is, I feel unloved. All speech reveals something about yourself. Particularly in Ireland, because we're such great storytellers, we sort of disappear off into a Celtic mist with the story. But stay with the speaker. Stay with the speaker. So it's very, very important to connect with the speaker and not just the words. The communion doesn't take place at the level of the words. It takes the level when the speaker and the listener become one. Just so you understand this becoming one, and I've used this analogy before, but if you... If you woke or half woke up in the middle of the night and you felt this hand moving up your body in a sort of a menacing way, started to scratch your neck, just like that, you would be terrified until you found out it was your own hand. <laughs> Once it's your own hand, there's no fear at all. If I go like this, if I bring my finger towards my eye, there's absolutely no fear at all. And I can bring it as close as I want to, and there's no fear. If somebody else says, let me just put my finger towards your eye, there is fear, because that hand belongs to someone else. Now, if you can become one with your listener, or with your speaker, all fear goes. Because there can be no fear if there is no other. And so that's the key. The key for you is to meet, I've assumed it's a man, but anyway, to meet this man where he's at. You meet him where he's at, and you have empathy. You understand what it is like to be a man lacking in confidence who feels he's a bigger man if he has a bigger story, or he's a more entertaining man if he has a bigger story. And if you can do that without the judgment, you will relieve him of the burden. And then his speech will become natural. And that would be a great thing to do. Whereas you trying to protect yourself by saying, oh God, not this blooming story again. If I just may say so, that's quite selfish. First of all, it just has you in an agitated state. And it also confirms to the man that he is boring and, and his stories need to be even bigger to get people's attention. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's self-defeating the whole thing. It's a very, very important point. When you have 
imagined that the person in front of you is boring, that is the time to really listen to them. Do not switch off from somebody that you think is boring. Really switch off. And what you do, you will help them. You will always notice this, that if somebody is really listening to you, you speak differently. So, that's it. Thank you very much.